So like I mentioned, Matt's on uh, vacation right now. And uh, <clears throat> so I asked him earlier this week if he had any suggestions for me, if he had any encouragement, anything like that. And uh, he basically said, look, Mark, if you're going to get up there and you're going to talk about Jesus, if you're going to talk about grace, forgiveness, love, let your face shine like that of an angel. <laughs> if you're going to talk like about hell, damnation, your regular face will do. <laughs> so we're doing this series on parenting. And uh, he asked if I wanted to continue that series or do something else. I said I didn't have a problem doing a message on, on uh, great parenting, but the sounds of the laughter of my children would probably be in a problem and a distraction, so I decided I was going to do something different. Uh, so what I wanted to do today is speak a little bit on the theme of God of love, God of judgment. It's something I talked about once before many years ago. But it's something that as the years has gone by, it's an issue that um, seems to become more and more relevant as the years go by. Because in the culture in which we live today, people have questions not so much on whether or not God exists, but the nature and the character of God as he is revealed in the Bible. In fact, many atheists today have, uh, I wouldn't say abandoned, but they've kind of backed off a little bit more on the issue of whether God exists. And they, they go after the character of God as they see, as they perceive him in Scripture. They see this idea of God of love and God of judgment. And, they, and as Richard Dawkins says, look, I can maybe, maybe buy into the fact that there's some force, some cosmos that... If you, you know, a thinking person, I guess, could believe that. I don't believe it, is what he says. But don't tell me about some God of love. I've read, your new, I've read the Old Testament. I know the judgment that he puts and everything, so don't tell me about this God of love. He is the God of the Bible, as he would say, is not worthy of the universe itself. And that's a very interesting and difficult question, but I think the problem to me is even more acutely felt than that, because I think many Christians struggle with this idea. They get this idea in their minds that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, and the God of the New Testament is this God of love and mercy, and they struggle with the idea, is this, you know, it, what happened here? Why is there a difference? Why does it feel like, is this the same God? Is it two different gods? Why, why does there seem to be a difference here? And uh, the simple fact is um, you're going to read about God's mercy, God's love, and God's judgment in the Old Testament. And you're going to read about God's love, his mercy, and his judgment in the New Testament. It is the exact same God. That shouldn't come as a big surprise, but, you know, if you look, the book of Jonah, for example, which is in the Old Testament, is considered by many people to be, by many scholars, to be one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. There are three books that many scholars believe to be some of the most ancient parts of the Scripture. Jonah is up there with being one of the oldest books there, okay, inspired by the Spirit and part of our, our Scripture. And in that book... 
we read how Jonah is a prophet, and most of you are fairly familiar with the book. Jonah's a prophet, and he's called by God to go and give a message to the people of the city of Nineveh. And he gets this, and instead of going to Nineveh, he turns and goes in the absolute opposite direction. So he's living here, Nineveh's here. He's going in the opposite direction, and uh, he's running away from God. And you know the rest of the story. He's caught up in, he goes on a boat, he's caught up in a storm, he's thrown overboard, he's swallowed by a fish and vomited up onto the beach. Lunch is sounding good. And he decides at this point he's going to go, but the fact of the matter is he doesn't want to. And the reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he hates the people of Nineveh. Jonah hated them with a passion. He doesn't want to give any message that God has to give them. He simply just wants them wiped off the face of the earth. And the reason is, is you know, from the, from the time of Genesis, he call, God calls to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And they are referred to as the Israelites. Well, the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, were not Israelites. They were Assyrian, and they had been ruthless they were not friends. They were absolute enemies of the Israelites, and he had been, they had been ruthless to his people. The story of Jonah is not some story of some reluctant prophet on the run. This is a man whose passions ran very deeply on behalf of his people. And so we have to be... He, he, again, he doesn't want to go and give them a message. He just wants them to die. And so we have to be kind of careful when we think about God's judgment. Because often as hum, oftentimes as human beings, what we're interested in when we think about this is not judgment, but revenge. Um, have any of you guys ever watched like uh, Harry Callahan, Dirty Harry Callahan movies, or James Bond movies, or anything like that? Just put your hands up. Don't be ashamed. I mean, if you've seen these kind of movies, be, put your hands Shame on you. I can't, but what are you doing watching that kind of stuff? You know better than that. You were better than that. That's what Matt would say. You're better than that. But if you watch one of those movies, what do you want to see happen to the bad guy? Do you want Callahan to handcuff him, put him in the back of a car, take him to jail, have him tried, where he goes to prison for the rest of his life? Is that what you want to see happen? Seriously. What do you want to see happen to the bad guy in these movies? You want them to die, exactly. You want them to die. How do you want them to die? Exactly. Badly, horribly, slowly, painfully, absolutely. In one of the movies, the Dirty Harry movies, I, there's a scene where the bad guy is up on top of a, a roller coaster because who knows. And he's standing up there, and he's got this lady, and he's got a gun to her head, and Callahan's down at, at ground floor looking up at him. And this guy is as morally repugnant as you can imagine. He's a murderer, he's a rapist, he's saying all kinds of vile things to him and everything. And he's been that way through the whole movie, and there's a sudden reversal, and the woman gets away, and he's got a clear shot, and he starts taking it, and he starts pumping 44 caliber rounds into this guy. He falls, and he starts dropping 400 stories or whatever it is, he just drops for a day. Goes through like this glass-type ceiling, 
where there's a carousel, because if there's a you know, roller coaster, there's got to be a carousel directly underneath it, I guess. But he falls through, and then he lands smack on top of a unicorn, you know, with the horn sticks right through him. Now, this kind of dates me, but I saw that in the theaters, and I can tell you, when that scene happened, the audience rose in applause and cheered in the manner in which this guy died. When most of us imagine what it looks like to execute justice, oftentimes what is at the bottom of our heart is not justice. We're often looking for some form of revenge. And that is very different from the execution of justice. And Jonah does not want justice for the people of Nineveh. Like I say, he wants them to die. So he goes in the opposite direction. When he finds that he can't, he goes to the city and he gives the message. And everyone repents in the city. Everyone, including its leader. And Jonah sees one of the greatest cities in the ancient world go through an enormous spiritual revival, and he is depressed. He is absolutely, utterly depressed. And that is how Jonah, chapter 4, starts. I'm going to read from the NIV, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through, th- 1 through 3. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Now, as I understand it, the Hebrew kind of discusses this as, almost, as it's described in their language. This is almost a physical thing. This, he is, it's like he's almost physically thick. He is sick to the pit, to the bottom of his stomach with loathing. And he prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, isn't that interesting? Jonah's complaint about the nature and character of God in the Old Testament, in one of the oldest books of the Old Testament, is that God is too kind too gracious, too loving, and he seems to want to have compassion. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, because he knows that God is in the habit of forgiving people. He doesn't want that. He wants them to die, and he wants them to die painfully. So just on a simple reading of the character of God in the Old Testament, saying that it's somehow incompatible with how he is described in the New Testament, is simply wrong. That problem can be handled by the very sophisticated method which we call reading. So let me just suggest that you read this book. It's worth your time. (laughs) But this then comes to a very different and maybe a deeper problem, and that is this. Well, wait a minute now. If God is so loving, if he is so gracious, if he is so kind, if he likes to have compassion... Why do we read about judgment in the Old Testament? Why do we read about judgment in the New Testament? Is that somehow fundamentally incompatible with the nature of God, if he is love in his being? And I think the reason we wrestle with this particular question is not because we have spent insufficient time dealing with the issue of judgment. It's because we have not spent enough time 
thinking about love. So I'll take a couple minutes to deal with that. I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to read a novel by uh, Jane Austen. It's titled Pride and Prejudice. It's considered one of the greatest love stories ever written in the English language. If you're a man, you probably haven't. Um, and if you're a man, you probably not, never saw the six-part miniseries um, of the same title. It was pretty well handled, and you might notice that there was a striking resemblance between myself and Mr. Darcy. Um, but anyway, the story is a, a love story between Mr. Darcy and the heroine of the novel, the main character of the book, a woman called Elizabeth. And uh, as the book goes along, he's kind of an arrogant, proud kind of guy. And uh, as the book comes along, goes along, he finds himself falling in love with her. He doesn't know it, he doesn't even want it, but he finds himself falling in love with her. One day he comes and calls on the house. It's like Downton Abbey type thing, because whole, the whole family lives in this house. And he shows up, but the family is gone except for her. And he goes into a room, and he finds himself alone in this room with her. And courtesy and etiquette requires that he leaves. So he stops, he bows, he goes to leave, and he stops. And he turns around, and he says the following, It will not do. My feelings cannot be repressed any longer. You must allow me to tell you how much I ardently admire and love you. Gentlemen, please listen to me very carefully. That line is a winner. <laughs> However, after using this wonderful, glorious line, he keeps talking, and he keeps talking, and he, keeps, and he says he loves her, even though it goes against his will, against his reason, and against his own better character. She then rejects his declaration of love. Being a man, he can't understand why. So he asks, <laughs> I thought that was funny myself, but... <laughs> Um, so she asks, he asks for an explanation, and she says, look, you told me that you loved me, even though it went against your will, against your reason, and against your own better character. In other words, she is saying, you told me that you loved me, even though it went against all better judgment. True love cannot exist in the absence of judgment. True love can only exist in the presence of it. The words, I love you, have meaning only when the person who speaks them to you really knows you. Most of us are so desperate to find true love in our lives, we go around projecting an image of ourselves to other people, trying to get people to like us and to love us. The problem with that is, is people end up falling in love with the image. They never get to know the real person, and it leaves us feeling very hollow and empty. That is why... The very powerful, the very rich, the very famous, and the very beautiful find it extremely difficult to find true love because people fall in love with the image and not the real person. I can promise you, if you're sitting here this morning, even if you're one of the most powerful or, yeah, most powerful or popular people in this town, if no one knows you, the real you, the darker side of your character, all of your faults, all of your weaknesses, all of your failings, 
If, they don't, if nobody knows that about you, you're going to be one of the loneliest people right now. I can also promise you, if you do have a group of people that know you, that really know you, all of your faults, all of your weaknesses, all of your failings, and they know that about you and they, they still love you, those are some of the most meaningful relationships you have. Whenever anything awful, terrible happens to you, or whenever anything wonderful happens to you, these are the first people you call because true love cannot exist in the absence of judgment. True love can only exist in the presence of it. One uh, great group of uh, American philosophers, I'm kind of into philosophy a little bit, and one group of them that, that I really appreciate are the uh, black-eyed peas. I thought that was funny, too. <laughs> anyway, they have a song titled, Where is the Love? And I want to read to you a few lines from that particular song. People killing, people dying, children hurt, you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? Can you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send us some guidance from above. Because people got me questioning, where is the love? Wrong information always shown by the media. Negative images are the main criteria. Actually, the song goes negative images, it's the main criteria, but I've corrected the grammar because that's not right. <laughs> Infecting young minds faster than bacteria. Kids want to act like they see in the cinema. Whatever happened to the values of humanity? Whatever happened to fairness and equality? Instead of spreading love, we spread animosity. Lack of understanding leading lives away from unity. That's some pretty good stuff, but uh, here's the line that to me is the real killer. The truth is kept secret. It's swept under the rug. If you've never known truth, then you've never known love. They're absolutely right. If you've never known truth, then you've never known love. And that is precisely the way in which God loves humanity. It is exactly the way in which he loves you. God sees you exactly as you are. He doesn't have a false image of you. He doesn't have the wrong idea of you. He knows you through and through, and he knows exactly the way you are, and there is nothing kept hidden from him. And here's the mystery. He loves you. True love does not exist in the absence of judgment. True love can only exist in the presence of it. And part of Jonah's complaint with God's compassion, that, that's, that's one of the problems that Jonah really had. One of the many problems that he had was that God is compassionate. Today, words and meanings are getting a little bit more difficult to, to parcel out. But compassion, and the word compassion was a word that used to govern the early church. Hopefully it's a word that, that governs us as well. Because the word compassion does not mean that you care about something very deeply. The word compassion is a word that means that you make a moral judgment about something and then you are moved by the very depths of your being to do something about it. That's compassion. For example, you have compassion in the, in the face of poverty. If you make a moral judgment on it and say, that is wrong. 
but you're not happy to just say that, because if that's all you're doing, then all you're doing is moralizing. No, it moves you to the very depths of your being to do something about it. You have passion, or you have compassion in the face of racism when you make a moral judgment and say, that is wrong, it shouldn't be that way. But you're not willing to just moralize about it, it moves you to the depths of your being to do something about it. We worship a gracious and a compassionate God. He looks into every human heart and he makes a moral judgment. That is wrong. And then he is moved by the very depths, by the very center of his being to do something about it. And that is why the cross is at the very center of our Christian faith. It is at the cross where sin is dealt with. I'm sure part of Jonah's problem with the Ninevites is that he can see all of the problems and the failings and the sins of the Ninevites. He can see all of it. He doesn't like them, and he doesn't love them, and he doesn't want God to like, love, or show compassion to them either, and he's terrified he will, that God will ultimately forgive his enemies. Um, I have uh, Sunday Mondays off, and so oftentimes my kids are gone at school on Monday, Barb's at work on Monday, so it's kind of pathetic, really, but I, I, I'll get on my, you know, iPhone or iPad, whatever, and I'll, as I'm doing stuff around the house, I'll watch debates, apologetic, Christian apologetics, where scientists and all that, that's my thing. Anyway, um, there was one, one time where um, a guy, and I would have to assume this had, took place in the Middle East, uh, just by the setting and everything. I don't know exactly where it was, but this, this person was speaking to a Christian apologist. An apologist means to defend the Christian faith, by the way. And he says, all right, I have a question for you. He said, you, you Christians say that Jesus Christ had to die on a cross in order for us to be forgiven. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I've asked some of your priests, and I, they haven't been able to answer it for me very well either. So this is my question for you. Why did Jesus Christ have to die in order for us to be forgiven? And the answer the guy gave was quite interesting. He said, you know, it was long, longer than this, but he said basically something to this effect. Have you ever noticed in a society when justice collapses, hope collapses? And the guy nodded his head. He was... Uh, very willing to say that. And he says, well, in, many, in, in all the different religions of the world, there's a problem here because you always hear about God exercising his mercy, but how is he doing that? He's exercising his mercy at the expense of his justice. Does that make sense? You know, justice says I need to do this. Mercy says I'm going to have to do that. So stuff justice, I'm just going to forgive you. That's kind of a problem, don't you think, for God? I mean, what would you think about any human judge that would do that? We had a murder trial just recently, and a jury just found the person guilty of murder and stealing several vehicles, etc., etc. Can you imagine the judge saying, well, the jury has found you guilty. I agree with the verdict. It was a good verdict. It was a well-thought-out verdict. You may go. I know this person died and everything else, but I'm a merciful judge, and I'm just going to forgive you, and you may leave. 
we would have a problem with that because when justice collapses, hope collapses. But in every religion in the world, you see this, God exercising his mercy at the expense of justice. He does it in every single case except one. In the Christian faith, God exercises his mercy through his justice. It is through the justice of the cross that mercy comes. It is through the cross that sin is dealt with and the penalty of sin and the consequences and the requirements of the law have been fully satisfied. And it is at that place where everything, all of that is bought and paid for. And when all of that has been done and God's wrath is fully satisfied, that on the satisfaction of the grounds of justice, God exercises his mercy through his justice. Jonah is angry with God. He is incredibly angry with God. He hates the people of Nineveh and he wants to run away. If you want to run away from God, from personal experience, I can tell you it's a very easy thing for you to do. And some of us, some of you may be doing that right now. You may be keeping God at a distance from your financial life, your sexual life, your personal life, your prayer life. You may be even willing to come here and worship and possibly even raise your hands, as Herod did in the temple in the time of Christ. But you need to understand that God sees everything. He knows exactly what you're doing, and he knows exactly where you are. You are not fooling him, but you might be fooling yourself. He sees you, and he knows you. The requirements of his justice have been met at the cross, and he is offering you forgiveness while upholding his justice. Jonah is offended by God's compassion. We sing hymns in praise of it. In fact, um, Jonah would have claimed to know God, but he was angry when God exercises his forgiveness. And God even asks him, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah won't answer him, so God asks the second time, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah says, yes, I do. You can read the text for yourself. He is angry to the pit of his stomach. He is offended by grace. There is no incompatibility between God's judgment and his love. As a matter of fact, you can't even understand God's love in the absence of justice. And God exercises his mercy by upholding his justice, and we are all benefits of that. And that is what Jonah missed. Jonah is left at the end of the book, sitting next to a withered vine, with God pleading with him, saying, you're now angry with the vine, because you cared about it. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh with its 120,000 people? Um, can I have uh, the worship team and the elders come up? We're going to celebrate communion here in a minute. And as we do that, Paul asks that we examine ourselves. So, in light of this, um, I have a couple of questions I would like to ask. 
every one of you, including myself. And the first one is this. Where are you with God right now, honestly? The interesting thing about the book of Jonah is Jonah ended up doing exactly what God told him to do. Did you ever think about that? God told him to go to Nineveh. He kind of took a long route to get in there, but he went to Nineveh. God told him to give a message. He gave the message. Jonah ended up doing exactly what God told him to do, and yet he received zero benefit or zero pleasure from it. Where are you with God right now? Is it possible that you're even doing, either in your career or through this ministry here, you are even doing exactly what God has asked you to do, and yet you're feeling no blessing or joy out of it? If that is the case, I think you need to ask yourself some very serious questions. Which leads us to the second question. As where are you with God and how are you living right now? When you encounter the God who judges and the God who is righteous and the God who took compassion, was moved, wept, went to the cross, paid the price, and has done everything possible for us to come to know him, how are you living in the light of it? As he looks upon each and every one of us right here and now, are your words, are your lives proving that we have repented? Repentance is the mean in which we receive his forgiveness. And in the Christian faith, works is not the basis of our salvation, but it is the evidence of our salvation. Is the evidence there? I believe God is calling all of us to a deep repentance. It is the means by which we receive his grace and forgiveness. So in this time, again, of uh, communion, um, I would simply ask, as Paul would say, um, to examine yourself, where you stand, and understand back here is this cross. None of us are perfect. I certainly am not. But he's paid the price for it. So accept the mercy. Accept the grace that has been offered because he has paid the price and the law has been satisfied. With that in mind, um, I just want to kind of talk about what Paul said um, as he was recounting when the night before Jesus would go to the cross. He took bread and he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. In the same way, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks and praise. He gave the cup to the disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven do this in memory of me. For as often as you eat this bread and take this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes back. Communion is something that is open to all. You don't have to be a member here. If you are a Christian, then as you examine yourself, come to the cross, come to, the, come to communion. 
Lord, again, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time that we could gather and worship. And it is my prayer that that is what we did by the power of your spirit. May we go out and realize that we are not, as uh, the Roman guard said, we are not worthy to receive you, but only say the word, and we are healed. May we come to the cross. May we experience the forgiveness that you will that you offer through repentance and through your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.